This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. 23 days until Election Day, and candidates are stepping up the call to get out and vote, especially when it comes to members of a very large and very significant demographic for whom sometimes the call is vota. We've asked Maria Elena Salinas of the Spanish-language network Univision to report our cover story on Hispanic Americans in this election. After which we have other pursuits in mind. Sarah Jessica Parker once personified a single woman's search for love in the city. But in her new TV role, she's a married suburban woman whose love has faded, as she'll tell us in our Sunday profile. In her new series, Divorce, on HBO, actress Sarah Jessica Parker plays a suburban working mom whose marriage is foundering. But when did it start to go off the tracks? Well, per perhaps when you grew the mustache? But in real life, she's been married nearly 20 years. What does happily married actually mean? Oh, the things that annoy me don't matter. Ahead this morning, we'll talk about love and marriage and sex in the city with Sarah Jessica Parker. From time to time, beginning this morning, we'll be in good company going behind the scenes at successful businesses, large and small. Lee Cowan will be starting us off. 
chances are you've got at least one, if not several, of this company's products in your home right this very moment. My dad's new product group, they developed Raid, Pledge, Glade, and Off all in about a three-year period. And the company just exploded. If you can guess what that company is, you get points. Because although its brands are household names, the company's name, not so much. S.C. Johnson, ahead on Sunday morning. You can bet any number of people right this instant are playing her songs. Songs with lyrics by Carol Bayer Sager. And there are plenty to choose from, as we'll be hearing from Rita Braver. Carly Simon may be belting out this song, but the words she is singing come straight from Carol Bayer Sager. What makes a good lyric for you? One that touches me, and therefore I feel it'll touch you. As long as they're playing my song. Later on Sunday morning, the life and lyrics of Carol Bear Sager. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Martha Teichner shows us a bumper crop of bumper stickers. John Blackstone walks us through the reworked Nixon Library. Steve Hartman offers up a lesson of a lifetime and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Who will win the election three weeks from now? The outcome could depend on how members of one very large constituency respond to the urgent call, VOTA. To report our cover story, we've turned to one of the anchors of the nation's largest Spanish-language television network, Maria Elena Salinas of Univision. It's been called the Latino Explosion. From Desi Arnaz Honey, I'm home. to Sofia Vergara. From Frida Kahlo to Big Papi, David Ortiz. From Carmen Miranda to Lynn Manuel Miranda. From George Lopez to Jennifer Lopez to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Wherever you look, Latinos and their culture have become a vibrant, inseparable strand of America's DNA. That's one way of looking at it. Here's another. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our manufacturing. They're taking our money. They're taking everything, and they're killing us on the border. The turmoil over immigration, specifically undocumented Mexican immigration, has become one of the hottest hot-button issues of the 2016 presidential campaign. We are going to build a great border wall. We will not build a wall. Instead, we will build an economy where everyone who wants a good job can get one. Leaving America's largest minority questioning once again where or if they really fit in. How close is American history tied to Latino history? I think extremely close. In fact, I don't think you can think of uh, the United States without Latino history at all. Francis Negron Muntaner is a professor and director of the Latino Archive at New York's Columbia University. Whether you call them Latinos or Hispanics, the terms are generally considered interchangeable, their role in American history, she says, has been misunderstood and undervalued from the start. 
there's a sense that uh, Latinos have come here largely as recent immigrants. But in fact, uh, Latinos began their life as part of the United States when the United States uh, crossed over to Latin America in search of territory. Uh, so for instance, the Mexican-American War in which the U.S. acquired half of Mexican territory. And as Mexicans like to say, in that area of the United States, they did not cross the border, the border crossed them. Yeah. <laughs> but as America grew, many did cross the border, though they were invited. Mexicans started coming into the United States at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, as they were uh, recruited to work in mining and agriculture as those industries expanded in the Southwest. And then you have World War I and World War II, in which the United States makes a concerted effort to recruit Mexican labor to fill in the gaps left by uh, men going to war. A century later, they're still filling those gaps. Today we have about 57 million people in the United States who are of Hispanic origin. Mark Hugo Lopez is director of Hispanic research at the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. I think that the impact of the Latino community, particularly on many aspects of American life, is only just beginning. During the past 50 years, the Hispanic population in America has more than quadrupled, from just 4% in 1965 to 18% today, with California, Texas, Florida, New York, and Illinois leading the way. You get about two-thirds of the Hispanic population in just those few states. However, the story of Latino population growth has really been one of dispersion as well. And we've seen growth particularly in the South. Right now, Georgia is actually the 10th largest Hispanic state overall. All of which means that come Election Day, America's 27 million eligible Hispanic voters will be a force to be reckoned with. These are the four key states right now where the Hispanic vote could decide the presidential election. We're Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Nevada. And it's interesting because Arizona is a new one on this list. Fernand Amandi is a Miami-based pollster and radio talk show host who focuses on Hispanic voters. How bad are things between Donald Trump and the Hispanic voters? It's about as bad as it gets, Maria Elena. And we asked in our polls if Hispanic voters thought he was a racist. A racist, not whether he has said racist things, but if he was a racist, over 70% of Hispanic voters feel that he is a racist. So I think that's about as bad as it gets. And once again, as we've seen in the last four elections, the one state that could be the tipping point in 2016? Florida, where 25% of the population is Hispanic. Well, right now, Hillary Clinton does have a massive lead over Donald Trump with Hispanic voters. Barack Obama got 60% of that in four, four years ago, and it helped him win the state by less than a percentage point. So I think she's going to need every single one of those points. And right now, she's on track to equal or do better than President Obama did in 2012. As Florida Hispanic voters go, so goes the keys to the White House. But historically, Hispanics turn out in low numbers. Only 48% of those eligible voted in 2012. I just think that our community deserves better which is where Ben Monterroso comes in. People are more engaged to date, are more knowledgeable to date, and I do hope and expect that they all go out and participate and vote. But I'm not going to sit here and wait for that to happen. Monterroso is executive director of Mi Familia Vota, My Family Votes, a Hispanic voter registration group. More than 400 staff and volunteers are knocking on doors in Arizona and other key states to get people to sign up. And this year, Monterroso says, is different. Why do you want to register? 
I want to make a difference because of what Donald Trump is saying. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. What happened in, in June 16, 2015 with Donald Trump said Mexicans, he was talking about all of us. He was talking about my mom, he was talking about my sister. You took it personal. I had to. Uh, there was no other way to do it. Trump's stance on immigration has clearly hurt him with many Hispanics. Many, but not all. We can't just throw out immigration laws and say, we don't need these. Anybody who wants to come can come. That's just not how it's going to work. Steve Montenegro is a Republican state representative from Arizona who supports tougher immigration laws. I believe that we need to have an immigration system that works, immigration system that honors immigrants. And at the same time, we have to make sure that we are abiding by the rule of law. As for Trump's claim that many Mexican immigrants are rapists and criminals? I'm not going to assume that I know what's in every candidate's mind, but what I know is that immigrants are honorable people. But true or not, Trump's allegations, says Ben Monterroso of Mi Familia Vota, tarnish all Hispanics. That is, except for the ones you know. People criticize the immigrant community in, in a bunch. Once they get to know somebody, and if it's the nanny who takes care of the baby, oh no, she's, she's, she's good, she's a good immigrant. If it is the gardener who takes care of your garden, oh no, no, not that one. The one that cleans your house, oh no, that one is okay. The one that serves you food in the restaurant, oh, that one is good as well. So we all good. And many Americans agree. In a poll conducted for Sunday morning on the overall influence of Hispanics on American society, 51% said it has been mostly good. Unless you're a Native American Indian, your family is from somewhere else, whether it's five generations back or one generation back. And one, you might say, who has been a very good influence is singer-songwriter Gloria Stefan. The strength of this country is that amazing quilt of so many different colors and ideologies and religions and political leanings and you know that's what makes this country great in the 1960s Gloria and Emilio Estefan fled Castro's Cuba for the US yes they became superstars but their journey is typical of millions of immigrants who come here seeking a better life we worked hard and I would go to school from 8 to 12 with the full load I would go from 1 to 9 at night, six days a week to work at the airport. Two nights a week from 9.30 to 11.30 at night, I would work at teaching community school guitar. And then I joined the band. Their life is a subject of the hit Broadway show, On Your Feet. It's a tale that Stefan believes isn't so much an immigrant story as an American story. Because whether you know it or not, this is what an American looks like. One that's taken on new urgency as we head to the voting booth. We hope that it lessens fear of immigrants that we, that gets dredged up and, and you know, nurtured every time that there's a political campaign and they want to find somebody to blame. It's always usually the last one in. We hope that what it shows them is how connected everybody in the world is, regardless of where you come from, how we all have the same aspirations and dreams so that we see the things that make us the same and not so different.
Next, off with her head. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, October 16, 1793. 223 years ago today, the day a notorious royal lost her head, literally. For that was the day Marie Antoinette, the deposed Queen of France, was guillotined. Born to Austrian royalty, Marie Antoinette was the child bride of the future French king, Louis XVI. Still only a teenager when she became queen, she quickly acquired a reputation for extravagant living that survives in popular culture to this day. A glorious tribute. I did not commission this necklace. I do not wish to acquire it. I need explain myself no further. Jolie Richardson portrayed the queen in the 2001 film, The Affair of the Necklace, a recounting of a jewelry fraud which further fueled popular resentment of the French monarchy. Anger boiled over into revolution in 1789, and over time, the monarchs were reduced to prisoners. Louis XVI was executed in January of 1793. Marie Antoinette followed him to the scaffold nine months later. She was 37. Marie Antoinette's sinister reputation is not entirely deserved. Turns out she was actually innocent of that necklace fraud. And contrary to popular belief, there's no proof she ever said of the hungry masses, let them eat cake. Straight ahead. Stuck. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We've harvested a bumper crop of campaign bumper stickers this morning. They're part of a hallowed, if sometimes raucous, tradition, as Martha Teichner now tells us. So you've got a fine car. It's been said that Americans have always considered their cars extensions of their personalities. So it does seem that cars and politics were made for one another. As early as there were cars, there were ways of decorating your car to support your candidate. So where we are is in the main storage area for political history. Harry Rubenstein heads the Division of Political History at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Before the bumper sticker, which you know, begins in the 1940s, you end up with these kinds of metal pieces that can weather the storm. It looks like your classic bumper sticker. Yeah. This one just happens to be from 1928. But then came World War II. They are bright. Along with it, technology, including day-glow colors and adhesive paper. It wasn't long before somebody put them together. Forrest Gill of Kansas City, Missouri. So he put the idea of the bright colors and the sticky paper together to come up with a bumper sticker. Mark Gilman is his son-in-law and chairman of Gill Studios, now located in Lenexa, Kansas. His innovation was to make the bumper sign self-sticking. 
America's post-war love affair with the automobile guaranteed that these traveling billboards got around. But tourist attractions, not political campaigns, were the original users. America speaks at the polling booths from... 1952 was the first real bumper sticker presidential election. General Eisenhower signs the register... Eisenhower versus Stevenson. Ike versus Adlai. This is sort of a play on Adlai Stevenson and his worn-out shoe. You know, they kept using it as this, he's working so hard to win your vote. But then, obviously, the Republicans also use it as an attack on him. Today, there are thousands of bumper sticker producers. Gill Studios is one of the bigger ones. In an election year, this one company prints 40 million, 15 million of those political. Just a wide range of candidates for Congress, for sheriff. Gill prints whatever message a customer wants, positive or negative. The company has no political agenda. Feel free to look through. There's (laughs) all kinds of... Absolutely. That is definitely not the case for the people who commission them. I'm not so sure that I'm going to put them on my car, but at least not yet. I think I'm a little nervous about what might happen. How toxic is this year's presidential race that any one of these little punchlines David Ellis is selling outside his Westport, Connecticut home... Well, thank you so much could be a 3 by 10 invitation to vandalize somebody's car. Automotive free speech can have consequences. I have the right to to service who I want to. You might have seen the story in May about the South Carolina tow truck driver who refused to tow a disabled woman's car because she had a Bernie sticker on it. He says, no, you're a Bernie supporter. And I was like, wait, really? And he said, yes, ma'am, and just walks away. Something came over, I think the Lord came to me, and he just said, get the truck and leave. How many items of political memorabilia do you think you have? I have uh, several thousand. Not only are bumper stickers inflammatory, they get no respect compared to all the other political swag out there. That's James Cox, who ran for president in 1920, and his vice president may not be recognizable there, but it's Franklin D. Roosevelt. Tallahassee, Florida stockbroker John Clark paid $12,000 for this button. But what about his bumper stickers? Bumper stickers may be five, perhaps $10 if it's very rare. This is my uh, collection of them. He's got hundreds of them anyway. Barry Goldwater. The odder, the better. Symbols for his name were AU for gold and H2O for water. Oh, I And get so, it. gold water. Once free, now you have to pay for bumper stickers, mainly so that campaigns can scoop up your name, phone number, and email address. Gill Studios has noticed they're good for something else. Do you ever have an informal correlation between the highest number of bumper stickers and who wins? Well, I can say that every, every winner, since we've been making bumper stickers, every winner of the national election has used the most bumper stickers. Who's ahead? According to this totally unscientific method of figuring it out, Hillary, with orders of 2.3 million this year. 
Trump is at 800,000. To quote a terrible cliche, only time will tell. Meanwhile, our vote, for best bumper sticker anyway, is this one. Still to come. That's your legacy. Uh, it's a privilege. Catching up with Sex in the Cities, Sarah Jessica Parker. That's What Friends Are For was a huge hit for Dionne Warwick and Friends, as well as for lyricist Carol Bayer Sager. Fans never seem to tire of playing her songs, as we hear now from Rita Braver. Beautiful thing. Oh, I love that. That's great. Her face may not be familiar. We don't cry. But her songs certainly are. Carol Bayer Sager has been writing memorable lyrics for more than half a century. Turn on your what makes a good lyric for you? A good lyric for me is one that touches me, and therefore I feel it'll touch you. At age 69, she tools around her lush Los Angeles estate in a custom-designed cart, and she's got a home studio full of gold and platinum records. There's more records, but I ran out of space. <laughs> but she says growing up in Manhattan, she was a chubby, insecure kid with a domineering mother. She told me she had to sew two Girl Scout uniforms together for me to get into one at about that awkward age of 12. And she had a picture of me on the refrigerator like that and said, you sure you want this fatty? <laughs> Music was her refuge. She wrote songs all through high school and college, but took a job as a teacher until 1966, when a song she and a friend had written became a hit. I got a check in the mail, and it was for $34,000, and I went, oh, I'm teaching school, and I'm making $5,200 a year. And what I was struck with at first was the inequity. I wrote that song so quickly, and teaching school is hard. She started writing full-time, but it would be almost a decade till she hit the charts again. Whatever it is, it'll keep till the morning. Teaming up with a then little-known singer-songwriter named Melissa Manchester. What was it like to have a hit again after It was nine great. Years? It was so great. It just felt like, wow, I'm so glad I kept doing what I love. And I think we can make it. But Carol's personal life was another story, as her marriage to businessman Andrew Sager, whose name she still uses, unraveled. She threw herself into writing, and then in 1975, a mutual friend suggested she try working with a young, award-winning composer, Marvin Hamlish. He told her he'd been commissioned to write a song for a James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. I said, you know, if I were writing a Bond song, I have a really good title. Nobody does it better. What about Nobody Does It Better for a Bond movie? He said, I love that. The Spy. Sung by Carly Simon, 
the song got an Oscar nomination. Looking through the eyes. So did their theme for the movie Ice Castles. Sager and Hamlish became a couple. And then you went on to write a Broadway hit musical with Marvin Hamlish and Neil Simon. Unbelievable. Oh my God. Don't you hear that? Don't you recognize that? Don't you know what they're playing? That's, I, I wrote that. Oh, they're playing my song. Yeah, they're playing my song. And Based on the quirky song, romance between Sager and Hamlish, the show was called They're Playing Our Song. Weaving its spell around this room. Nobody's and Sager borrowed the title for her new memoir, published by Simon & Schuster, a division of CBS. It details her breakup with Hamlish. We were friends at the beginning, and it was easy to be friends at the end because neither one of us were holding... Heartbroken. Heartbroken, that's perfect. We stayed friends until the end of his life. Once in your life... But the next chapter of her life was more complicated. Her relationship with famed songwriter Burt Bacharach, nearly 20 years her senior. I think I fell in love immediately with the way he speaks. If he were to meet you, he'd say, hey, uh, Rita, uh, good to meet you. Half whisper, half like the rhythms in which he... Pull you in. Pulls you in, holds you there, dangling. When you get caught between the moon and new, City. They were married in 1982, and there were plenty of good times. Their son Christopher, glamorous pals like Michael Jackson and Elizabeth Taylor. The Oscar they won for Arthur's theme. The best that you can do. And the Grammy for That's What Friends Are For. Fall in love. But Sager says the bad times soon outweighed the good. You say the years with Bert were sort of like being in an abusive relationship without any physical signs of abuse. Well, yes, because he couldn't give me what I needed. I didn't have the self-esteem to say, this isn't working for either of us. In one of the most honest things I have ever read in a memoir, you write that at one point he actually told you that sometimes when you touched him, it made him feel, quote, sick, almost nauseated. That must not have been easy to write. It was horrible, and, and it was horrible to hear. I was crying. I don't think he thought he was hurt. I don't know what he thought. You think he's a narcissist. That's what you say over Well, he over sort again. of told me. He once said to me, hey, baby, what do, you, what do you want from me? I'm a selfish guy. Maybe he would find me. Bacharach ultimately left Sager for another woman. And maybe he'd remind me. And they divorced in 1991. Of who I am. Sager did not give up on love. In 1996, she married Bob Daly, a former CBS executive who went on to run Warner Brothers and the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think I know better than anybody in my whole life. I know everything about Carol. And? And I love her. Warts and all. You always said that you feared that you were unlovable. Do you think he's changed that for you? Absolutely. I do feel loved. And a new passion for painting has helped her cope with some old issues. 
I started to paint the foods I couldn't eat that were forbidden foods as a kid and all the foods I'd like to eat. But she hasn't given up the art of music. Stronger Together, a song Carol Bear Sager co-wrote, closed out the Democratic National Convention in July. I do feel so extraordinarily grateful that I got to do what I love to do in this life. And I was rewarded for it. I would have done it for nothing. On me, for sure. An ending sure. worthy of a love song. That's what friends are for. I've been lucky enough to visit Canada a handful of times, and I love it. Jim Gaffigan, north of the border, next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You say you're leaving for Canada if your candidate is defeated? Jim Gaffigan has some thoughts about that. I'm moving to Canada. I've heard Americans say that. If one of these candidates wins the presidential election, they're moving to Canada? Well, given the possibility that half the U.S. population may move to Canada, I'm here to give my soon-to-be former Americans a summary of what they can expect of their new home in the Great White North. I should clarify, I know very little about Canada, because I'm American. But anyway, here goes. I've been lucky enough to visit Canada a handful of times, and I love it. Well, everyone loves Canada. Disliking Canada is strange and probably some type of indication you have a mental problem. I don't like Canada or puppies. Can't stand either. Canada has universal health care. Canadians love hockey, and they eat poutine. If you're unfamiliar with poutine, it is French fries covered in gravy and cheese curds. Now, I eat unhealthy. In fact, some would argue I've built a career on eating unhealthy. But to me, poutine is, well, irresponsible. I don't want to die, but poutine is delicious. Whenever I've eaten poutine, I've actually heard my heart say, are you mad at me? Did I do something to anger you? My brain will chime in, it's fine, it's fine. There's going to be some sweating. Well, there's going to be a lot of sweating. Bowels, you can have the week off. Canadians also love leaves. Well, I think they do. Canadians have a leaf on their national flag, which would lead one to believe Canadians love leaves. I don't know why there is a leaf on the Canadian flag or how that happened. Hey, why don't we put a leaf on the flag, huh? Why? Well, you know, that's what makes Canada unique. We got leaves. Other countries have leaves. No, they don't. Of course, it's a maple leaf on the flag. I'm not sure if that's about a love of maple leaves or maple syrup. I hope it's not the syrup, because that makes even less sense. Hey, you know that thing we used to put on pancakes when we were kids? What if we built our national identity around that? Anyway, that's all I know about Canada. After the election, when some of you move to Canada, can you do me a favor and find out why they have a leaf on the Canadian flag? Thanks. Commentary from our Jim Gaffigan. And what do Canadians think about us? Well, take a look at this video, which comes to us compliments of the Garden Collective, an ad agency in Toronto. 
America. What's up, America? Hey, guys. We're just up here in Canada talking about how great you guys are down there. We thought we'd just send you a little bit of a love note. We're big fans. We like you guys. We know you've got some really big decisions to make. But as you're thinking about your future, we just want you to know that you guys are great. You really are great. You invented the internet. You guys are going to get humanity to Mars. Your national park systems protect some of the most beautiful places on Earth. All your diversity and all your openness. The fact that you're such a giving nation, over $250 billion a year is donated to charities. So wonderful and warm and accommodating. When things are tough, you fight to make them better. The disability rights movement in America is amazing. You are infectious, entertaining. Your gift to the world of jazz music. Bluegrass music, R&B. Biggie and pop. Political and social activism. Forging new paths. You dream big. Your quest to be the best creates the best. A land of opportunity where anyone can be anything they want to be. The vibrancy and the diversity and the idea that we can all live together. You know, America, I think you're already great. You're great, America. We all love you, and we think you've always been great. Thanks, America. I think you're great. Stay great, America. You spray it on and then dust. Next. For the first time, dusting really gets you somewhere. Estee Johnson, cleaning up. Starting this morning, we're in good company. That's what we're calling our occasional visits to some business people who make it look easy. With Lee Cowan, we make it a clean start. You might not recognize it as the bottles fly by in the assembly line, but that's Windex the blue stuff that probably lives under your sink. Same with those swirling cans of Pledge. Maybe you've got a can tossed in with your dust rags, along with your Drano, some scrubbing bubbles, and perhaps a bottle of Shout. Remarkably, all these products, and shelves full of other brands, come from a single Wisconsin company, one with a simple but oddly forgettable name. S.C. Johnson, a family company. When I told people, I said, I'm doing a story on S.C. Johnson. They're like, oh, Johnson & Johnson? I'm like, no, 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 S.C. Johnson. Do you get that a lot? Oh, we get it a whole lot, yes. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Johnson & Johnson's a good company, so it's not a bad company to be confused with. But, but just in case, on the back of every S.C. Johnson product is the CEO's signature, Fisk Johnson, as if each was a signed greeting card from the Johnson family. And in a way, says Fisk himself, yeah. It is. Me and my siblings uh, grew up living and breathing this company. I mean, you know, it was part of the dinner table conversation every single night. The SC in SC Johnson was Fisk's great-great-grandfather, Samuel Curtis. He was a parquet floor salesman in Racine, Wisconsin, when he realized that there were more floors than there were products to keep them clean. He mixed his first batch of Johnson's wax in his bathtub. And the rest is, as they say, history. So he just abandoned the flooring business and started selling wax all over the place. And that was 1886. In all now, five generations of Johnsons have led this now $10 billion a year company, making it one of the oldest family-owned businesses in America. But while their products may be household names, the Johnsons themselves prefer to keep a lower profile. They don't trumpet themselves as a dynasty, they rarely do media interviews, and they have never considered allowing the company to be publicly traded. Never. 
you know, we get some of the best information about what our competitors are doing from Wall Street, and I'm sure they kind of look at us and just see kind of a black box out there, which is a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Its headquarters, however, is hardly a black box. In fact, for a company that likes to keep things private, it makes quite a statement in downtown Racine. There is nothing normal about this building. Fisk's grandfather, H.F. Johnson Jr., commissioned architect Frank Lloyd Wright to design it. The result was remarkable. Dozens of giant golf tee-like columns soared two stories into the air. They support the building's only real window, a glass ceiling, which floods the huge open floor plan below with natural light. At one time, over 120 people worked in this room. It makes you feel like you're kind of inside a forest looking up at the canopy. Wright called it his corporate cathedral. He even designed the office furniture including these three-legged chairs, which were very unstable, and people were falling out of them. (laughs) Wright later replaced those three-legged versions with four-legged ones that are still in use today, and they're now worth a small fortune. How much does it cost to keep this up, though? (laughs) (laughs) I hate to tell you. Believe it or not, just in the last couple of years, we've put $30 million into this building. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Next door is the 15-story research tower, that Wright also designed. It opened in 1950. Its odd skeleton can best be seen at dusk. It has a central core that's 13 feet in diameter, like the trunk of a tree, and all of the floors are hung off of that central core like the limbs of a tree. Greg Anderegg used to work for S.C. Johnson, and he later helped with the tower's restoration. Wright again wanted to allow in natural light, but Instead of just plates of glass, he decided to use glass tubes instead. 17 miles of them. And we hand cleaned every one of them. I might point out that we used Windex to do that, and they look <laughs> sparkling and look great. Of course you did. Uh, but... It now looks much as it did when Bob O'Brien worked here. I mean, it was always bright, but you just felt like you're working in a snow globe. Despite having to wear sunglasses while formulating his products, he loved it. But formulation is an art, and uh, I would come into work, and, and these benches in this laboratory, that was our canvas, you know, a canvas that Frank Lloyd Wright built, right? So you come in here, and you just couldn't help but feel inspired, and there was just energy. The tower became integral to S.C. Johnson's success, even part of its ad campaign. Now, from the famous research tower of Johnson's Wax, comes Glade. It was the womb for some of the company's most recognizable brands. You'll be glad you used Glade. From Glade air freshener to a bug's worst nightmare. Oh no, it's Raid! Raid was developed by Sam Johnson, Fisk's father. It killed bugs but not plants, which at the time was revolutionary. But it was also the first of Sam Johnson's string of products that didn't contain any wax. My grandfather said to him, don't you know we don't make any products without wax in them? <laughs> and my father said, as the story goes, well, we could put a little wax in it, but I don't think that'll do any good. <laughs> Fisk knows his dad's are pretty big shoes to fill. And no matter the Johnson who takes over after him, he says they'll probably feel the same way. This is my great-grandfather's office. Izzy Johnson is Fisk's niece. She's just 25. 
She doesn't know if the baton would come her way, and yet... Do you feel that sort of generational pull that the company seems to have on... In a pull in a sense that it's something that I want to contribute to because it's something that I'm so proud of and has been so close to me for so long. The Johnsons proudly wear family on their corporate sleeve, and few places is that more evident than at the company's annual holiday park. It's a pretty elaborate event, part family reunion, part giant thank you. This year will mark the 100th year they've been doing this, and as it always has, the party ends with bonus checks. It's called Profit Sharing Day. It's a tradition and a privilege, says Fisk Johnson, that comes specifically from remaining a private, family-run company. The official winners, here they are. The way public companies are operating out there today, in my mind, is very dysfunctional. They don't care about people. They cut costs because Wall Street values short-term gains, and you know they make a lot of money in the process, and then they, and then they move on. There are bigger family companies with bigger payrolls, but what F.C. Johnson has managed to keep alive is a sense of big business with a small feel. It seems progress doesn't always have to mean looking ahead. Sometimes it's about remembering where it all started, too. You can use pledge on leather, marble, metal. Ahead? The gospel truth. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. There's no telling when you might learn the lesson of a lifetime. Steve Hartman has a case in point. There are two very different sides to 48-year-old Anita Hughes. At her church in Cleveland, she is a fearless hurricane. While at home, she's more like a stationary front. Except for church, she rarely leaves the house and won't travel anywhere by herself. Which is why it was such a big deal last month, when Anita Hughes decided to step way outside her comfort zone and take a trip on her own. I just got out. And I made it to the car. And I turned the ignition, and I actually got on 77 South. And I went. She was headed for North Carolina for a gospel concert, and she made it just fine. But on the way home, she got so terribly lost, she didn't even know what state she was in. So Anita pulled into the 7-Eleven in Strasburg, Virginia, to ask directions. You can see her entering there on the right. Unfortunately, there's no sound. But by all accounts, you could hear her desperation, loud and clear. What did you say exactly? Can somebody please tell me how to get to Cleveland? And everybody still just paused. <laughs> I mean, she came in full-throated, like a Broadway star on stage, reaching the back row. She was genuinely turned around. Jason Wright was a customer in the store. He says he gave Anita directions, but she was still scared and skeptical. I said, that's the right way. You come show me how to get to Cleveland. So he did. What? Yeah, they so nice. I mean, I'm going in the complete opposite direction. You were? I live here to the south. I'm driving north, 
so far out of my way. Jason drove 35 miles out of his way to get her back on track to Cleveland. But here's the best part. A few days ago, he drove another 300 miles to take her to the moon. (laughs) Obviously, Anita and Jason have become fast friends. They talk on the phone just about every day and now share a real fondness for one another. Jason gave you a lot more than directions that day. That he did. Just a little bit of an appliance of affection can change a whole situation. Since their chance encounter, Anita has taken another trip to Detroit. She got a new job and says she's more confident now than ever. And as for Jason, he thinks he's gotten even more out of this. The lesson of a lifetime. It just doesn't matter the skin color, the zip code. We're brothers and sisters, and we really do have a responsibility to help one another get home. And you mean that metaphorically, don't you? I mean it in every way imaginable. When one got lost, hope got found. Would you sing it? Oh, the song? Mm -hmm. Still to come. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Sarah Jessica Parker reminisces. You're always a day away. And later, we check out the Nixon Library. Oh my God! Shh, Carrie. Do you, do you know what these are? We're not even supposed to be in here. Manolo, Blahnik, Mary Janes. I thought these were an urban shoe myth. <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker played a romance-seeking Manhattanite in the TV series Sex and the City. So what can we expect from her latest role? Just one of the topics we discussed for our Sunday profile. Carrie Bradshaw reigned as the sexual anthropologist of the 90s. In a relationship, is honesty really the best policy? Do we need drama to make a relationship work? Is it smarter to follow your heart or your head? In HBO's Sex and the City. I slept with Big last week. Was it good? It was great. Frothy. Hello, lover. Fanciful. How big was it? Fresh pepper. Naughty and addictive. Ladies, can we cut the cake and get out of here? I have a three-way to go to. Yeah. I have to tell you. So I had uh, uh, my daughter was then, I don't know, somewhere in her 20s, I suppose. And we're watching Sex and the City together once. And when it was over, she looked at me and said, let's not do this again, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's not a show you watch with your mom. No. I actually, my mom came to the premiere. I don't think I ever invited her back to any other premieres. And she knows I'm really fond of her and everything, but... You know. Right now, I'm taking my ladies to dinner. For six seasons, Carrie and her posse prowled New York City looking for love and other urban adventures. We have it all. Great apartments, great jobs, great friends, great sex. That's your legacy. Uh, it's, uh, It's a privilege. I feel that we are a fairly intimate group, this gang of 10 million that watch the show. Do you know what I mean? So I feel it behooves me to be responsible to and for every single thing 
I do. Sarah, Sarah, Actress, producer, and fashion icon, Sarah Jessica Parker looks back fondly, but from a distance, at her alter ego. She was so romantic, you know, it had to be love, 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 love all yeah. the time. It's a sparkle. Childish in a way. A little bit. <laughs> but there's nothing childish about Sarah Jessica Parker. She's been working since she was eight. Raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, in a family she describes as aspiring to be middle class. When you're one of eight kids, there's a lot that you get that's been um, pre-owned, now they say, um, gently used. Um, something new was just like so monumental an occasion. Like what was that um, new thing you remember? Well, when I was eight and I got toe shoes when I was a dancer and it was such a big deal. Ballet was her first love until she tried out for and landed a part in a local television production of The Little Match Girl. Like, I loved being somebody else. I loved it. I loved the money. I couldn't believe they were paying me. I mean, it was changed my life. Actually, the whole families. The Parkers made a big bet on Sarah Jessica's possibilities and moved to New York. She nailed her first audition. That was a big deal. I got that job right away, first day in town. And um, first that, day in town. Oh, first my day in town. Yeah. God, dreams come true. Only you're too young to have dreamt any. No, of this. I was dreaming all of it. I was literally like, <laughs> I was not casual about this. She made her Broadway debut at 11 with director Harold Pinter and actress Claire Bloom. And at 13, she landed a starring role, Broadway's Third Annie. Would you sing it? Oh, the song? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I the know. Song. I, I don't sing it well anymore. All right, it's going to be very, very bad. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun tomorrow. Parker tomorrow. estimates she sang I tomorrow more than 400 tomorrow. times. You're always a day away. How long does it take that song to get out from heavy rotation? You know what? I listen to the Annie soundtrack a lot. My daughters in particular love it. I, I don't want it gone. Parker's teen years were spent in front of cameras. Come here, Arthur. TV's Square Pegs in 1982. I think maybe I fainted. Maybe I should get the school nurse. Oh, no, no. Really, I'm fine. And then movies. Including Footloose in 1984. School wasn't a priority. I was a terrible student. I tested very, very poorly. But her mother taught her never to leave home without a book. To this day, she's a voracious reader. And a publisher noticed. About eight months ago, they said, would you consider doing an imprint? It's called SJP for Hogarth, a division of Crown Publishing. We can support writers, talk about specific books, but also small booksellers, and also libraries. And combining her lifelong passions for ballet and fashion, five years ago she helped create a fall fashion gala, raising more than $10 million for the New York City Ballet. 
So this is Valentino from our first fall fashion gala. Which is how we got privileged access to its wardrobe department. Carrie Bradshaw would have been in heaven. I think Carrie Bradshaw would have loved this. She would have loved this. People think, oh, costumes are fun and it's a fantasy and it's sort of frivolous, but it is a, an integral part of, of, of good storytelling. I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. After 13 years, Parker is back on HBO with a very different take on love in a new series called Divorce. When did it start to go off the tracks in your mind? As a suburban working mom whose marriage is foundering. Well, per perhaps when you grew the mustache? You said that women in their 40s are having affairs. And 50s. Or they know someone who is. Is there something going around? I think what I was saying was that there was a lot happening with a group of women that was very interesting to me and that I was at an age where I was looking at friends' marriages and relationships and I was recognizing that there is a story to tell about that commitment that we hadn't seen in a long time and if, if it's not themselves, it's their friends or siblings or parents or, or it's their secret. At 51, Sarah Jessica Parker's marriage is going on 20 years. She and actor Matthew Broderick have three kids, a boy, 13, and seven-year-old twin girls. What does happily married actually mean? Oh, the things that annoy me don't matter. And I think that is because we are we're grown-up people, but I feel like sometimes it's as simple as I still like him so much. Like, he's still the person that I hope I'm making proud. He's still the smartest and the funniest to me. We couldn't help but wonder about her TV marriage to the character known as Big. Married in the first movie, they're suffering the terrible twos in the second. Which brings us to a final question. Is there going to be a third Sex in the City movie? I will say that the idea, it rests in the butler's pantry. It's not on the table, but it's somebody is holding it fairly nearby. Well, one can't help but picture a Golden Girls kind of version of Sex in the City. Mm. And now you're, you're looking back, back on, on your life. lives, if you're inclined to be looking back on your lives at all, or are you still looking I'm forward? Sort of, I would have sort of imagined that those women have only interest in looking ahead. I think so while being informed by the past. And in a way, maybe that would be the best for all of us, living people, non-fictional as well. <laughs> Our latest Nobel laureate for literature, Bob Dylan, is just one of the legends performing at a California music festival this month. See them while you can, says our Bill Flanagan. For the last two weekends in Indio, California, 80,000 mostly mature adults have been traveling into the desert like ancient pilgrims to witness the gods of 60s rock, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, The Who, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, and the Rolling Stones at Desert Trip, the festival that has been nicknamed Old Cella. The headliners are reportedly being paid up to $7 million each, a bargain for the promoters, 
who grossed an estimated $150 million in the three hours it took the show to sell out. It is the most money ever made by a musical event. And all the stars are in their 70s. In a year when we lost David Bowie and Prince, there's a new sensitivity that these musicians who have spoken to us and for us our whole lives will not be here forever. Bob Dylan once said that a song is supposed to be heroic enough to defy time. These artists are defying time with a determination that is especially moving because we know it is impossible. A couple of years ago, I was standing on the side of a stage with Pete Townsend of The Who, watching the Rolling Stones. As Mick Jagger shot past us, I said, boy, I hope I can move like that when I'm in my 70s. And Townsend said, you couldn't move like that in your 20s, which is true. And that's why tens of thousands of baby boomers are standing in the desert this weekend to sing along with the musical heroes of their youth. Because as long as Mick Jagger runs and dances and sings like a teenager, we can believe for an hour or two that we are not getting older, that time will not touch us, that the best days of our lives are still here. Of course, these musicians are not really immortal. Someday they won't be with us, but for now, we are all alive, we are all together, and as long as the song is playing, now is all there is. Visitors to the Richard Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California, are looking back with a new perspective this weekend. Here's John Blackstone. The reopening of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum marked the completion of a $15 million makeover that makes no attempt to hide the flaws in the 37th president. But the museum tells a deeper story using interactive displays that Nixon's younger brother, Ed, appreciates. There's technology in here that's far advanced from what we had, sure. But we can't let the Reagan Library get ahead of us, you know. <laughs> There's a replica of the Oval Office, a familiar place for Nixon's Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, one of the opening day visitors. When I see the Oval Office and when we're here together, so many memories reoccur. For Nixon's eldest daughter, Tricia Nixon Cox, the museum is a place where the nation's history intersects family history. Here you are beside Bob Hope. Beside Bob Hope. This is one of the typical evenings. A typical evening with Bob Hope and Arnold Palmer and Henry Kissinger. That's right. Trisha's son, Christopher Cox, was born too late to know his grandfather as president, but he knows the stories. This is uh, one of the most famous moments in my grandfather's administration when uh, he met Elvis Presley, and uh, it still lives on in history today. The museum has the gun Presley brought as a gift for the president. People really are astounded that it got past the Secret Service. <laughs> There's a room dedicated to Nixon's historic trip to China in 1972. Are, are you going on to Air Force One? Yeah, I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to go on to, on to Air Force One. <laughs> she remembers it was a breakthrough her father talked of long before he became president. And, of course, the only thing that had to happen for it to work was he had to be elected president. <laughs> and, and he was. And that's right. Nixon also built a relationship with Russian President Leonid Brezhnev, who came for a summit at Nixon's California home, Casa Pacifica. Mr. Brezhnev actually spent the night 
at Casa Pacifica in my bedroom. Oh. <laughs> and um, but I was uh, actually staying with friends that night. So. <laughs> Brezhnev slept here. Huh? That's right. All the highlights, however, lead to the long hallway documenting Watergate and resignation. It has to be a little painful to walk through this, see the headlines, see the... Well, I think that you put everything in perspective, and I think that when you look at my father's whole life and his whole record, it's really one of great love of country and wanting to make the world a better place. The past can't be changed. And we restore this place of worship. But perhaps the way we look back can be changed. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.